You're here for a special book. Okay, come on, read the book. Right. Go, okay, read, go, read, read. <sighs> Evil demons. Wretched <laughs> monsters. Haunted houses. Graveyard. Ones you read are safe. Satanist, welcome to another edition of Where the Books Are Buried. I'm here with Jesse. What's up, guys? And today we have two exciting books to talk about. We're going to have Jesse start us off. This is the morning edition of the Sale of Satan podcast. We're drinking coffee and tea and water, and we're sitting in our kitchen full of, uh, full of cats and, uh, and heat. 105 <laughs> degree temperature. Yeah. Yeah, and we're doing something different. We're actually recording before work, which is odd it's lovely yeah. i like to say it's lovely um so yeah i'll, I'll start us off here uh, it's been a little bit since we got um to do this and i'm pretty excited to share this one with steph because this was actually a really good book and a new author too that i haven't read before um so we're gonna kind of you know if you if you guys have heard the previous where the books are buried we've done um we're still kind of trying to figure out how we want to do this, um, so it might be a little different every time we do it. Yeah, it does change a little bit every single time. Because it's difficult. Um, we don't want to like talk 100% about the book, but then we'd also want yeah. you guys to kind of understand you know, what we're talking about. Yeah, we don't want to bore with minute details yeah. either. Um, so what, what we typically do is I'm going to start with the back of the book, which kind of gives like an overview, and then I'm going to read the front, which has like a tagline on it, and then I'll read the um, epilogue. And personally for me this time i'm going to go through the books beat by beat so it may be a little longer but i feel like this is the book that kind of warrants that Mm -hmm. because it kind of adds to like the overall story whereas like some of the books i've talked about before i could easily go through it and you guys could be like get the gist of it this one there's a lot of stuff going on and it's it lends to the story itself if i tell you you know if i go through it beat by beat so i'm going to read the back right now in a desperate attempt to save their marriage robin and matt packed up their two children and drove to the mountains of rural california for a much-needed vacation. They had rented a crumbling old house that sat atop an abandoned mine and hoped that the peaceful setting would calm their nerves and rekindle their love. But something evil inhabited the gloomy caverns beneath their house, something incredibly ancient and insatiably hungry. It lusted for the bodies of their children. It thirsted for their blood. It craved their flesh. It would not be denied. The feeding... Do you know where your children are? Mm. Which I think that was a um, tagline that Mayor Nutter used for Philadelphia when he was like, where are your kids at? Yeah. <laughs> so it's 11 o'clock at night. Do you know where your kids That's are at? That's what he did. <laughs> um, and then on the cover here, it's um, They Fed and Bred on Human Flesh, The Feeding by author Lee Clark. Now, Steph, I know you have something pulled up here. He's a, he was a hard guy to figure out, get like a biography for, because nowadays everybody in their... Um, mother has a freaking wikipedia page Every, so far every author we've covered has had either a wiki page or and or their own website oh, so the, it's it's really strange and before you get into that stuff the cover of this is again it's like a paperback it's an embossed uh what do they call it like tin like tinfoil typey cover that's like you know ra- i love raised. those that are raised most yeah. of these are and um it's two children a young boy and his younger sister walking into a cavern which is also like a weird demon mouth that has these hands like pushing them into the mouth yeah it's good it's a good cover um, yeah, so what do you got, Steph? So, uh, Lee Clark, and the, it's spelled L-E-I-G-H, with I, which I think is interesting. Interesting way to spell it. 
so Lee Clark is the author of horror fiction novels Blood Sabbath from 1991, The Feeding, which we're talking about today, Evil Reincarnate from 19, 1994, Shock Radio from 96, and Carnivore from 97. He now teaches English, honors English, AP English Language, and AP English Literature at James Monroe High School in North Hills, California. He is the director of the school's the school's School for Advanced Studies program and continues to write books, although we don't know what kind of books he's writing because it doesn't say. I hope nothing like this because as, <laughs> as you'll come to find out, hopefully he's not teaching these children the well, way like, he probably shouldn't even be I, mentioning this to the kids. Well, right? I will say this book um, is probably one of the uh, better written books I've read so far. And, yeah. it, and after reading this book, I definitely want to check out some of his other books because um, this, this one's just batshit crazy. Mm. Um, and... Before I get into the actual, I'm going to read you guys like kind of the epilogue, but I'm going to go over the, just some of the main characters. Matt is the dad, obviously. He's an architect, and he is working on a big project that he's really stressful about, and um, it's called Vista Encantada, oh, which is like this. Sounds fancy. He lives, they live in LA, mm -hmm. so he's a big hotshot LA uh, architect. Um, his wife, Robin, the mom, she's a photographer, the son, Joshua, and the youngest daughter, Katie. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're the main characters. Then there's a bunch of other like you know characters that come in and out of the story as we go. And here we go. This is the uh, epilogue. The Watcher in the Shadows. Gordon McLeish's hideous painting materialized before Robin's eyes. The Watcher, banged, mouth gaping, stared at the children picking flowers, white eyes on fire, with a hatred that yearned to destroy them. Dear Jesus! <laughs> Robin put a hand to her mouth with a hunger that sought to devour them. That was the real horror in McLeish's painting. The obscenity. The thing in the shadows wanted more than death. More than mere destruction. But this is no painting, Robin's mind screamed. This is a photograph, and I know it's real because I took it! Oh, God. <laughs> so, alright, I'm gonna get... Uh, so, I'm, I'm gonna go through this kind of beat by beat, and, um, Steph, you just listen up and tell me if there's something you don't understand. I'm okay. gonna try to make it... Uh, I'm trying to make it fun, you know? Yes, sir. On the way to vacation, the family stops at a gas station. And from the weird attendant that's there, they hear about a pile of human bones that have been found at a nearby cavern. Ooh. And so the kids are talking about it the whole way up, like scared to death about what it is. And they're like interested. And as they're talking about this, they've come upon a car accident as they leave the gas station a, a little bit down the road. And Matt, the dad, gets out and sees that the driver's chest has been crushed by the steering column. Oh. And he's burning alive in oh, there. God. And the other girl is missing a leg. He pulls her out. She dies from blood loss. And he, as he's dealing with this, Joshua's looking from the car window, and he can see into the woods, because they're like, where they are right now, there's like a bunch, it's like a large wooded area. Mm -hmm. He could see out into the woods that there's this woman that was ejected from the car windshield, and she's laying like in the ground, like in the grass, like covered in the trees and everything like that. And he sees like shadows around her and something like pawing at her. Oh. And like, 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 and he looks at it, and it looks up at him, and it has like these white eyes. And he closes his eyes and opens them, and the body's gone. So, police arrive at the scene, and Joshua tells his dad what he saw, and they go to investigate, but there's nothing there. So, they just think it's a kid's imagination. They're yeah. like, oh, you're crazy, blah, blah, blah. So, they get in the car, they leave to go back to get on the road to go back to this house they're staying at. They're staying at a house called Cameron House, which is near, you guessed it, Steph. What the. The cavern where the human bones were recently oh, found. Oh, God. They arrive at the house. It's this huge, huge, huge like uh, mansion. 
Well, I figured it would be a mansion because only mansions well, are I, named. I don't want to say I it's think. like it's. I mean, it's not a mansion, but it's like a big, big like house. ornate like yeah. cabin. I want to live in a house. That, can we name our house when we buy a house? Yeah, it's going to be called <laughs> Thumb Residence, <laughs> and it's really stupid. It is. <laughs> um. So the house is decorated like as you would imagine in taxidermy. Uh, huge like uh, grizzly bears in there. Oh, of course, the outside of the house has like gargoyles and griffins on it. And they're greeted by a caretaker and her son, who has a bit of the downs. Oh, no. And I imagine he looks like Bobo and Little Devil from freaking (laughs) Nothing But Trouble. And she gives him the history of the house, which it turns out the house was owned by a man named Marius Kemmering, the wealthiest man at the end of the last century, who built the town's first gold mine. Um, He was obsessed. He was actually like, he built a bunch of gold mines throughout the country, and he built one here. That never ended up wielding any gold. Oh. Um, yielding any gold. Uh, and you also find out that the basement in this house connects to... The cavern. The caverns where the human Holy bones were shit. recently found. You see what's happening here? I do. I say it. It's called bad writing. <laughs> okay. But it's, uh, but it's also called great writing at yeah. the same time. <laughs> the reason for that was that I guess like the owner was so obsessed with the mines, he wanted to go there every day. So he had the miners connected to his house so he could just go down to the basement and go into the mines whenever he wanted to. And then the Boogans were there. Find out more about that. In his basement cavern. Yeah, you'll find out more about that later. (laughs) So Matt and Joshua decide they're going to go fishing and Robin and Katie go for a walk to pick flowers. As girls girls do. Yeah, girls want to pick flowers and boys want to fish and kill things. And as they're they're on their walk, uh, Robin stumbles upon a man chopping wood with his shirt off and she is overcome in pussy juice. Whoa. She gets super horny. With her daughter there? Yeah, her daughter's, her daughter's off picking flowers, and daughter, she kind of like mean. sees, yeah. That's weird. She sees, and um, she goes over and tries to sneak up on him, and she starts taking pictures of him, because he's just like so ripped, and he's mm-hmm. like sweating. He's like a beautiful he's got, man. He's got long blonde hair and a blonde- <gasps> Fabio. And he's got a blonde beard. Is he and, Fabio And he's with got a beard? like ripped abs. <laughs> and she tries to sneak a picture of him, and he introduces himself. Gordon McLeish. Oh my God. He actually invites her back to his cabin, because guess what? He's a painter, and he wants to show her his work, since they're both artists. Oh, yeah. They have this artistic bond, you know? So she goes over his house, and- And she just leaves her daughter. No, so, her daughter comes with oh, her. Oh, okay. There's a lot of great decisions in this book, yeah. made, like, <laughs> just over and over and over again. The decisions will just blow your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, she sees his paintings, and they're basically, like, the most grotesque things. There's, like, shark eating, like, a woman's intestines, oh. dead children being consumed by vultures, um- and all of a sudden, she becomes overwhelmed by the thought of basically having sex with Gordon. Like, she keeps, like, having these thoughts of, like, oh, my God, I want to pull out his penis. I want to start sucking it right Whoa. now. And I can't control myself. And, oh, my God, he's so, he's so hot. And he cares about my art. He cares about my, um, my artistic ability, unlike my husband, who never asked me about my photography. Um, and she gets so overwhelmed by it that she runs out of the house with her daughter before she gives in to the desire because she feels like she's going to just, like, pull down his pants at any moment if she doesn't leave Whoa. immediately. It's extreme. Meanwhile... Matt and Joshua are fishing. Mm-hmm. Joshua hooks himself a human foot. Oh my god! And the dad gets really pissed off at Joshua because Joshua gets scared and drops his fishing rod into the water, and his dad gets pissed because it was a three hundred dollars fishing rod. Not concerned about the foot. That about was, the foot, right? Pissed or about his son's mental well-being. No, from seeing a dead foot. No, he's just pissed <laughs> off because goddamn it, that was a three hundred dollars fishing rod that I just bought you. Who cares about the human foot? Typical Stop rich dad. being a pussy. <laughs> so as they leave, because they're going to go to tell the police about this, they are warned by an eight-foot-tall giant with a glass eye and cat-like agility that no. 
they are in great no. danger and should leave immediately and never return. And they're just like, mm, buggers. And the guy walks away. Wait, how did he know he had cat-like agility? Did he jump from a tree or something? Um, well, no, he just like appeared out of nowhere. Oh, okay. But don't worry, because they're going to get the kids' minds off of all these things. You know what they're going to do, Steph? Take them for ice cream. You're right. No. They're going to take them for a guided tour of the caverns, of the caverns. where the bones were found. <laughs> Hashtag, why are there still guided tours down there? Right? Um, so they do this. They're like, oh, we're going to get the kids' minds off of all this, blah, 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 blah. Don't worry about telling the police about the foot. We'll tell the police about that later. Right now, we have to get Joshua's mind. We, he, he needs to see some stalactites and stalagmites. This is a lot of, this is a series of bad decisions. Yes. The tour guide tells them that Native Americans believe the caverns were haunted by the people of the dark, who are basically flesh-eating demons. Oh. What was going to tie the Native Americans into it? So as the tour continues, they come to a dead end, and you find out more about Kemmering and his gold mine. Miners back in the day started quitting or became missing because, you know, or they were quitting rather because that people kept going missing and they didn't know mm-hmm. why. And they kept reporting like eerie sounds down there. Then the Kemmerman children were killed under mysterious circumstances, which caused his wife to leave him. And Marius was just re- like fed up with it at that point. He led a party of 55, 55 men into the mine to disprove the rumors, but all the men were never heard from again. Whoa. When authorities investigated, all they found in the cave was a cave in, and they became known as the sealed tomb. Oh. Then the tour is abruptly ended because one of the kids finds a severed head. Oh my God. <laughs> so they leave. But don't worry, Steph. Not even a severed head is going to ruin their vacation. Shortly after they arrive back home, an old man named Walter knocks at their door asking for. You guessed it, Steph. Cheese? <laughs> the girl Joshua saw that was ejected from the car that no one believes exists. Oh. It was his daughter. <gasps> And so Matt and Walter go to the police station to try to tell the cops what's going on, tell them about the foot. But guess what? These cops, they don't care. They say... I also want to say, back to the accident scene, shoddy police work. If they looked at the spot where her body was, I mean, there would have been blood somewhere. Yeah, no. Shoddy. They're just like, there's nothing here. There's no signs. There's no body. There's no signs of a struggle. Yeah. I mean, first of all, wouldn't you see the the glass windshield was cracked? Right. Like that somebody came out of it. And gore was matted all over. Steph, listen. Shoddy. Shanana. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Shana. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Meanwhile, Joshua and Katie have snuck into the basement and mm-hmm. they're approached by a pale creature with a misshapen head, saggy skin, and glowing white eyes. And it speaks to Joshua telepathically. Oh, of course. He says, You are mine. I claim you. And they run upstairs. And the mom hears this thing downstairs and she runs to the door and the creature starts scratching at the door, pounding at the door, pounding at the door, pounding at the door, and they hold their clothes. I guess it eventually leaves because Matt returns home and Joshua tells him what he saw in the woods at the accident. And now with the correlation between the mom saying something was banging at the door, I didn't really see what it was, but something large was banging at the door and eventually went away. He's like, okay, I believe you. Finally. So the family goes to check into the motel because they're going to get the hell out of that house. So they go to the hotel where Walter was staying, but he's disappeared now. After he met with the police, he's, he's become missing. Mm-hmm. And everybody at the hotel is acting like he never stayed there. And he's like, I know he stayed here. He told me he was staying at this hotel. I'm like, nope, he was never here. So as they're at the hotel, Joshua becomes friends with a boy named Kyle. And they decide to ride their bikes. To, the, to the cavern. To the caverns. Jesus. And Kyle dares Joshua to explore with him. And as you know, Steph, if, he, if one of your friends dares you to do something, don't matter how scared you are, 
You going? I mean, in, not me. I wouldn't do it. You going in there? I wasn't. I wasn't adventurous. I was afraid of everything. You were going inside. <laughs> so as this has happened back at the hotel, Robin gets cornered by the deputy Kessler, who has basically hates her husband now because of all the stuff he's trying to you know stir up in town about like all these problems that are going on. And what does he try to do to her, Steph? He tries to rape her. You got it. <laughs> but who shows up to protect her? The old guy, Walter. Gordon McLeish. Oh, 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 oh. Comes Fabio. In, okay. Comes in with his chiseled body and just kicks the shit out of this dude. And guess what? She they, agrees to go back to his place. And they do it. Again. Oh, no. Okay. I'm they, jumping ahead. They go back. Yeah, they go back to his place. Meanwhile, Matt searches for Walter at the chapel because he knew, he knew Walter was going to go ask for his daughter at the chapel to see if anybody had any, um, you know information over there so he goes there and he finds a, sp- a suspicious book that's like lying open on one of the desks in the priest Con- room conveniently it's called a psychoanalytical study of cannibalistic human sacrifice in primitive cultures and it's opened up to a page that says the offering and the feeding and he notices a huge disturbing fresco painted on the ceiling called master of animals oh and it's God. depicting like this weird version of like jesus christ with like this huge toothy grin passing handfuls of his organs to like various like animals like bears what? and and like vultures all these like predators um can you guess who painted that um fabio gordon mcleish <laughs> Suddenly, the man he saw from the lake enters the chapel. And guess who he turns out to be? A professor in anthropology. Oh, of course. Who, again, immediately advises him to leave. And he's like, why are you telling me to leave? He's like, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. And he just leaves. Strutting it, strutting I mean, it. I want to hear. I want to know. Meanwhile, <laughs> Gordon McLeish is getting balls deep in Matt's wife. Of course he is. So now I'm going to read you an excerpt. <laughs> oh, shit. A sexy passage? Um, it's more than sexy. Oh. It's it's a little long, but I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna read it in its entirety. Go for it. Robin shuddered violently and threw her arms around his neck, their tongues thrusting deep into each other's mouths as he guided her slowly, imperceptibly across the floor and back towards the couch. This is wrong, Robin tried to tell herself again. She started to break away, but McLeish's grip on her tightened. He reached up and began unbuttoning her blouse. His hands grazed her breast lightly as he worked at the buttons. She raised a hand to stop him, then rested it gently on his hand as he undid the last button. The blast fell open. He unfastened her bra. It parted in front, the two cups dropping away to reveal her small white breast, the dark red nipples jutting out hard and aroused from the soft pink, almost colorless areolas encircling them. He began to stroke her swollen nipples, slowly, slowly, (laughs) pulling on them gently. Under his light touch, they stretched out incredibly long and hard, like the huge thrusting nipples of a nude model she had seen once in the magazines. So big, they hardly seemed real. <laughs> what? It's a lot of detail about these nips. Robin leaned back and opened her mouth, moaning slowly. He bent down and took one of the swollen, straining nipples into his mouth, his beard scratching the soft skin of her breast. He teased her erect nipple, bit down on it lovingly then sucked on it until Robin felt the room starting to whirl around her. He eased her down onto the couch, removing her blouse and shorts. Robin helped him, her hands trembling, eyes feverish with desire. Her whole body was trembling. She could see her flesh quiver as McLeish took his mouth from one huge erect nipple to the other, (laughs) glistening now in the firelight, and moved slowly down her torso over her belly. When his lips touched her labia, she gasped. 
Then his tongue probed at her clitoris as she cried out. Her breathing became harsh and erratic. He continued to push against it with his tongue, sucking harder and harder, adding to the own wetness until she felt she must be staining the couch with her wetness. (laughs) She tried to move, but then her body stiffened and a tremor jolted through her as she cried out again, and the whole world, sunlight and firelight, seemed to fall away in one sweet rush. Cummings! Then he was kneeling in front of her, on the couch, his own clothes removed, one hand on his penis as he guided it into her. It was much larger than she had expected. Too big, in fact. It'll tear me open. He'll hurt me. <laughs> oh my God. She gasped as the head pressed against her wet labia, then entered her with a sudden thrust. The whole huge length of the shaft was inside her now, filling her up with its warmth and hardness. McLeish began rocking inside her with a steady, accelerating rhythm, the great hard length of him thrusting in and out. She moved with him and against him, time and space dissolving in one blinding orgasm after another, the passion growing with each climax. Oh, man. Damp. Flesh, pressing against damp flesh, bodies locked together, hearts, blood pounding furiously in unison. It came out of nowhere, like a rush of cold air, ice cold. The chill gripped her heart and spread through her body like a malign living presence. She saw Joshua. She felt him, heard him, alone, frightened, surrounded by darkness, in mortal danger. Robin, her damp face with sweat, looked up at McLeish and saw by firelight his steel-gray eyes, his handsome face, expressionless. Sweat beating from his smothered forehead as he thrust mechanically into her with grim determination. Taking his pleasure, she thought suddenly, recalling that faded expression from another distant age, but there was no pleasure in it. He was like a machine, a household sex aid programmed for maximum enjoyment. The deep thrusting was no longer a shared sensuous frenzy. It hurt, like being battered by a blunt instrument, hammering away with passion or sensitivity. Robin grimaced at the pain and the spreading coldness throughout her body. She tried to twist out from under him, but McLeish kept on his labors. She sensed again the horror in Joshua's desperation, the mortal danger. So she's having like visions as this is going on of like Joshua being in trouble. Uh And McLeish kind of, his eyes kind of glaze over and he basically like turns into like this weird, like inanimate object that's just doing something. He's not like, it's not a person anymore. And the ice cold thing she's talking about is his jizz. So Kyle is attacked by a creature in the mine. And this is what she's getting from Joshua. Mm-hmm. She's getting like his fear. And that white creature comes back as they're in the mine with the white, I mean, the white eye creature. Yeah. And starts talking to uh, Joshua telepathically again and says, you are mine. Kyle gets attacked. It cuts from that scene. Robin wakes up. I guess she fell asleep after they banged. After the passions. She was, ter- she was completely terrified, but she fell asleep somehow. I don't know. It's strange. She wakes up and she's like, I need to get the hell out of here. So she escapes in McLeish's Jeep. He's like kind of chasing her on foot, but she manages to get away. And she nearly collides with another car, which turns out to be Matt. Together, they drive to the abandoned mine where police have found the boys' bikes. Matt enters the mine against the police's will. He sneaks in there because it's all closed off. He finds Joshua. They go back to the house and they start packing up their stuff to leave. But when Matt goes into the car to turn on, it does not work. So he leaves by foot to go to the gas station and he leaves um his gun with robin kyle's dad who is um going to get answers from the professor sees matt walking and's like come on i'll drive you there we need to go talk to the professor and see what the hell's going on he's the one that's gonna have the answers so matt's like okay so they didn't find kyle kyle was attacked is he dead uh kyle's presumably dead yes um joshua wakes up back at home he has this growling in his stomach and he starts to remember what happened in the cave he was basically stripped naked by a hairy, uh, emaciated demon who was forcing him to drink like cups of blood 
from this like clay like offering thing and ever, all these little creatures were around the big creature and they're like chanting like praga 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 <laughs> and then they give him like chunks of meat and force him to eat the chunks of meat and Joshua has like this hunger in his stomach that he doesn't like understand what it is but he knows he's like really 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 hungry and um the big one is the one that, that fed him the meat and the blood. Mm-hmm. That's the one that was um, telepathically speaking to him. Okay. And there's another one that's in there with the rest of them that's kind of sickly looking. They notices it's kind of different looking than the rest of them. And it has a long white beard. And it looks like it was once a man. And it crawls around trying to get the scraps from the other creatures as it falls down. Like, and it looks like, he basically like describes it as like a big white spider. Because this oh. guy is like crawling around on all fours yeah. like weird and stuff. And he has like elongated limbs. So Joshua leaves the house. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just like going by instinct and he kills a rabbit and brings it inside and then is like consumed by a bloodlust and just starts like ripping the rabbit Ah. apart and eating all its insides. Robin returns home and finds him covered in blood chanting, Praga, Praga, Praga. (laughs) She takes him to the bathroom, forces her finger down his throat and starts making him throw up all like the like organs and blood from the thing. She locks him in a room and leaves Katie Who's I don't know. They don't ever tell you how old she is. Maybe five. Let's leave the child with the other child. Leaves her with the key to the room and says, you're not going to let him out no matter what. I'm going to come back well, with help. I'm going to go get the doctor. So she leaves on Joshua's bike that she retrieved from the <laughs> cave. Because they don't have a car. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, Matt and Kyle's dad have searched a professor's house, finding a cassette tape, which they play, revealing Kyle's torturous death. And it like is basically like the... He's like Kyle's like screaming for his dad and like you oh, can hear all these horrible. creatures like ripping them apart. It's really it's really detailed and um, explicit. And the professor's assistant enters the room and she basically reveals herself to be a superhuman cannibal before swiping at Kyle's dad's head <laughs> and decapitating him oh and pinning Matt to the floor. And they struggle and they struggle. Well, the professor in his house, he's like an um, anthropologist. So he has all these like artifacts from like tribes and everything like that. And Matt picks up a freaking axe off the wall and buries it into the um, into the chick's head mm-hmm. and throws her in the fire because there's like a fire going in the fireplace. So is the is the professor a bad guy or a good guy? You're gonna find out. Okay. Um, and he like falls to the ground and Matt's like all like injured from getting like slashed and cut up by this like half human, human half cannibal. Like, cannibal. Yeah. <laughs> And he hears something big coming down the steps and he's like, "Oh God!" He's like, "I don't have any more energy to fight back. Whatever it is is just gonna kill me." And it turns out that it's a professor and he has all these like wounds on his neck because like she was like feasting on him upstairs. Matt is the one that interrupted like the whole bloodletting that was happening upstairs. Like when they came in to start looking through the house, mm-hmm. she heard him and stopped like feasting on the professor. But oh, okay. I guess she thought he was weakened enough. So the professor basically explains about how his assistant was lured by the people of the dark with the promise of eternal life. Ah. And he says that the creatures have existed throughout history. Using the incident at Donner's Pass as an oh, example, no way. he's no. like, he's like, the family didn't eat themselves. He's like, the creatures lived in the caverns there and came out and uh, and ate them. <laughs> nice, nice tie into and history one of them, there. Yeah, and one of them became like a weird, like, like became in league with them in some way. Okay. And his theory is that they're actually Neanderthals because Neanderthals were known cannibals, and he asserts that there has to be something supernatural about Neanderthals because. How is it possible that they survived the Ice Age with merely rancid scraps of uncured animal hides for warmth? He's like, picture if you were in the Ice Age and it's negative 40 degrees and all you have to cover your body is a rancid animal hide. He's like, do you think you would survive? He's like, no, you wouldn't. 
they have to be supernatural. <laughs> oh my God. I like how you just make that leap, though, you know? And he be, he's like, basically, he tells them, like, he's like, where do you think all the myths come from in the world? Vampires? Werewolves? Demons? Oh, uh, okay. They all come from the cannibalistic Neanderthal that still roams isolated parts of the world. Oh, boy. <laughs> he also, one of his theories is, he thinks because of their long lifespans that it's difficult for them to reproduce. Because when they drink the blood or the praga, kind of like ravenous, mm-hmm. they're absorbing the animal or a person's soul, oh, okay. and it prolongs their life in the process. So they use young boys to impregnate their females. Mm. Meanwhile, Robin is run off the road by none other than... Gordon. The deputy that tried to oh, rape her. Oh. And what does he try to do, Steph? <laughs> he tries to rape her again. He tries to rape her again. <laughs> Forces her to the ground. Oh, man. And is about to take his pants off when he is beaten to death by... Gordon? Gordon McLeish. But I thought Gordon was a bad guy. He is. Oh. But he's trying to mess with her mind. Oh, okay. Noises surround them from the forest. They can hear all these like, <laughs> and so basically like Gordon McLeish is like, get in my car right now or you're going to die. If you don't come with me, you're going to die. And she's like, I have no choice. So she gets in the car with him. They go back to the house for the kids to get Katie and Joshua. When they arrive, they find Joshua eating Katie. <gasps> no! Her stomach's all ripped open. He's like eating her guts and... Robin loses her shit and starts bashing Joshua's head into the floor repeatedly and screaming at him like, why did you do this? Why did you do this? And McLeish enters the room, grabs Robin off of um, Joshua and tells Joshua to keep eating his... his, Oh my God. He calls it, he's like, finish your Praga. Finish your Praga. (laughs) So he like goes, Praga, Praga. And he takes her sister and drags her corpse up the steps into into his bedroom where he starts like, she can hear him like eating her upstairs. Yeah. And then McLeish like kind of like throws Robin on the ground and goes to the door and starts staring at the door like and he's in like this haze again. He can hear like the creature's noises outside in the forest Mm -hmm. and he's waiting there for Matt to come home so he could just kill him. Oh, okay. But what happened earlier in the story, Matt left the gun with Robin. So she goes in, gets the gun, pulls the trigger, blows Gordon McLeish's brains all over the place. Nice. Just as Matt and the professor arrive outside. Then they all come in. She tells them what happened. They they fucking douse for whatever reason. They have they have a can of gasoline. No, not even oh. cooking oil. Uh, they have oh. fucking barrels of cooking oil. I don't, I don't know why, but okay. they just like barrels of cooking oil. I was like, okay, I guess that's just something that they had there, and they dump it all over the freaking goddamn um, cabin and set it on fire before entering the mines through the basement. And they left like I'm um, Joshua. Is he dies in the fire or no? No, Joshua doesn't die in the fire. Okay. They kind of bring him with them oh, okay. down into the thing. And Joshua runs off and gets away from them in the mine, and they can't figure out where he went. And they're walking, and they're walking. It's, it's the professor, it's Matt, and it's uh, Robin. They hear in the distance chanting, it's Praga, Praga, Praga. And they enter this large like opening where the entire town is gathered with the creatures. Oh, I knew it was a town conspiracy. I knew and, it. And the one creature that looks like a white spider with elongated limbs mm-hmm. is marius <gasps> kemmering shit and he actually sacrificed his children to the creatures oh. and that's why his wife left and, okay and he went down there afterwards and has been he living joined, all this time them. so he has been he's super old at this point so she sees robin sees joshua naked and still eating the flesh of his sister robin screams for joshua she says tell him to stop she's like stop eating your sister stop eating your sister and the master they start calling this this lead creature the master now, out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the one that has the glowing white eyes. He enters the room, and 
He's much larger than the rest of the creature, and he starts projecting into his mind, he, into like Matt and Robin's mind. He is mine forever. And a bunch of the little creatures grab Robin and grab Matt, mm-hmm. and the professor has disappeared. They don't know where he went. He's gone. The smaller creatures force Matt to watch as the master, with his enormous gray no. and scaly phallus, rapes Robin as Joshua looks on. Oh my goodness. And here we go. I'm going to read you that real quick here. The master entered her with one crude, violent thrust, growling deep in its throat like a jungle cat. And as the movement began, the pain tore her through in waves, each one more terrible than the last. Even worse than the pain was the knowledge that her son was watching this, her desecration. She knew, in some obscure part of her mind, not made mad by the thrusting, searing pain that her husband was watching too, but this was his fault. It was all his fault. Oh, yeah. What well, was? Slobber dripped down from the master's fangs onto her bare breast. She never hated Matt like this before. Hated him for her pain, degradation, and for killing her daughter, for making her son watch his mother's rape. But Joshua was not watching. His eyes were dark and empty, as if they had turned inward and were observing something deep inside himself, something that still lived on secretly in a world of darkness and death. Matt was watching. All he could do was watch. Watch with the coolness of someone was moved beyond pain and loss, suffering and rage. They'll pay for it, he promised. Every last one will pay. The master reached climax with a shuddering howl. Robin screamed soullessly as the icy semen ejaculated inside her, causing a pit of terrible cold to spread from her womb throughout her stomach and into her heart, chilling it and turning it into brittle ice. The feeding ghouls took up the howl of climax, their terrible voices echoing like the cries of the damned under the cavern's stone roof. Torchlight flickered over a chaos of monsters howling in a sexual frenzy, the blood of innocence staining their devouring mouths. The master of the hunt withdrew from Robin's limp, unconscious body, the huge phallus still engorged, dripping blood and discharge. The creature turned slowly, deliberately toward Matt, huge claws raised, fangs bared. Suddenly, the creatures start to flee, and they don't know, Matt doesn't, Robin don't know what the hell's going on, and the freaking professor enters the room wearing a tribal mask. And oh. it's a tribal mask that they instinctively fear because it has something to do with like their gods and stuff mm-hmm. like that. He's like dressed up like almost like, like a, like, I guess like a bear almost because uh-huh. they worship like this huge bear creature and he looks like it. Oh, uh, okay. And he's like telling them like, you guys got to get out of here. So Matt and Robin grab Joshua and they manage to escape as the fucking professor starts throwing dynamite everywhere and making the caverns like collapse. They're kind of like above ground now and Matt starts like, pouring out his love for Joshua, telling him that it's not his fault and that everything is going to be okay. And he goes over to his wife and she's like comatose at this point. She's like babbling incoherently. She's just like lost. Suddenly, the master's hand erupts from the rubble and grabs Joshua's leg and he bursts free and they start struggling, back and forth struggling. Joshua climbs its back and he starts bashing like this large like rock on, his, on the master's head. Mm-hmm. Matt runs towards them, and he watches helplessly as they fall over the edge of a cliff. Oh, shit. And then it cuts to the, um, the epilogue, which is entitled The Return. Robin was thinking of nothing, but deep inside, beyond the pain of her violation, the emptiness of her loss, she felt something. The stirring of new life. Oh, no. She knew it would continue to grow until it became full, finished life. Then, when the appointed time came, it would reach out to enfold more life, all life, Within its own life, she smiled, and for the first time in a long time, she was happy. Oh boy, I knew that was going to happen. Little creature babies. Little creature babies. But it's weird because when they talk about it in the book, 
what the guy says is it has to be it has to be a human boy that has sex with a creature female for that for it to be a strong creature. Okay. If it's a if it's a creature that has sex with a human female, they're weak and they die early. Oh, so then what? I don't know. It's just okay. like I guess but the, because I, he's the master. It's like this, almost have- like the. It's almost like the writer forgot he made that yeah. statement because <laughs> I was like, yeah, but it doesn't matter because they're going to be weak. And, and yeah. I was like, okay, whatever. I guess he didn't think about that. I don't know. So mine, I, I kind of summarized mine. I think because I usually go, I feel like I usually go really long. Yeah, no, with it's these. fine. So I tried to be a little bit more. I don't think um, I'll ever do concise. that again. It was just fun to do. No, it, it was fun. One. That was a really interesting story. Um, yeah, I feel like with my book, you can kind of just skip entire parts and it's fine. You get the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to talk about Night Plague by Graham Masterton. And uh, I think, I feel like in, as far as the paperback like horror community goes, he's pretty well known, right? Like for the Manitou or whatever, Manitou. Man- yeah, That's Manitou. like his first, that was his first book. I really want to read his book called Feast. Feast. Hmm. That's a hard one to get. So yeah, so his first book was uh, the Manitou or Manitou or whatever, and that was written in 76. And then after that, he wrote, I'm just going to talk about him first, and then I'll get into the book. Yeah. He wrote more than 35 horror novels, including Charnel House, um, Family Portrait, The Picture of Dorian Gray. I don't know. I guess he there was like a movie made from one of his stories starring Jason Scott Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, he also wrote um, a bunch of other novels, like thrillers, like over 100 novels all together. And right. then he wrote some children's horror books, too, called uh, House of Bones and Hair Razor. So I don't know. And then I, oh, a series for young adults called Rook, based on the adventures of an idiosyncratic r- remedial English teacher in Los Angeles Community College what? who sees ghosts. I we don't have, know. Um, we have a couple of his other paperbacks. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so yeah, I, I kind of I saw his name around and I really wanted to read one of his books. What so. did you think of him overall as a writer? He, he's a good writer. He's a hundred million times better than uh, Johnstone. So like as far as like the so the book was like enjoyable you know he could he actually is a competent writer right, right. Um, but it's the same well I'll get into it a little bit but it's the same the same basic like you know good versus evil devil versus and I'm just kind of over that at this point yeah <laughs> yeah that's why I kind of like wanted to read this one because I knew it was just a yeah. straight up. No bullshit. It was like mine was like almost like a creature feature. Well, you know, honestly, I'm going to read the back of this book. The back of this book does not really give you any clue as to what is going to happen in this story. It's insane. What's on the cover of that? It's, so the cover is um, it's a woman who has white hair that's kind of standing up. Oh, on it is end. a woman. Yeah, she's standing up on end like she was electrocuted. You know, like when you see people like in a cartoon. Oh, okay. Um, her eyes are blindfolded and she's holding some kind of a cross. Um, and you don't know who she is until you read when you read the book you find out that she's actually a witch named Isabel Gowdy so that's yeah that's who that's based on Um, so the back of the book for generations the night warriors have used their awesome powers to defend humanity from evil entering men's dreams to change the shape of waking reality now five modern night warriors face their most terrifying enemy she is Isabel Gowdy witch and mistress of Satan Entombed for three centuries, her powers have grown stronger. Now her evil influence seeps through the earth, carrying the seeds of the Night Plague, a disease which twists men's souls into madness. The Night Warriors can stop it if they can find Isabel Gowdy's hidden prison, but time is short. With each night's sleep, more and more of humankind falls to the plague, and two of the Night Warriors are already infected. Night Plague. (laughs) Uh, okay, I'm just gonna read. There's like a I'm like little. I'm interested to know what is the night plague. Oh, I'm gonna get to it. Don't you worry. Is it's... it is it HIV? Okay, it's uh, 
when the, you have to consider the time frame of when this was written it is very much based on the hiv epidemic yeah. and you'll and you'll see um okay here said madeline madeline springer and beckon stanley to follow her across the room stand quite still here that's right and relax i know it's difficult i know you're fighting the night plague but you can do it if you try you can beat the plague and you can beat isabel gowdy and you can beat satan too Wow. <laughs> he's out there stanley i mean he's really confident <laughs> he's the out plague, there the yep. night plague a witch and, and satan. satan yep he's out there now tonight while everybody's dreaming and he's determined that this time this time he's gonna have it he's going to have us all this time it's for keeps <laughs> she laid her hand on his shoulder and he felt that same prickling electricity it's the end of the world if we don't beat him now you can forget about ozone layers and cutting down the rainforest. He'll take our morals. He'll take our families. He'll take everything, including our mortal souls. Oh, is this about Donald Trump? This is it. This is Armageddon. This is the pestilence that we were promised. Oh, so it is Donald Trump. <laughs> it's about Donald Trump's presidency. It's funny because that line is, is said over and over again. This is the pestilence that we were promised. Stanley says it all the time, I guess because it was like in one of his dreams. So he like, wakes up and he's like, this is the pestilence that we were promised. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So it's, the book, like like I said, I based on like, I wasn't really sure. I knew there was going to be something about a witch and evil and the night plague. I, I didn't know. The book starts off pretty quick. Like you're, you're immediately, you're introduced to um, Stanley Eisner, who is the main character. He is a famous American um, violinist who is in London, and he's, I don't know, he's there for like some performance or recordings with like some orchestra. Right. So he's like renting a, a flat, because in London you rent flats, and I mean, in case no one knows that, I just like to say that. Oh, Grand Ma- Master Tenna, um, is he a Brit? I don't know. Oh. I, I, it didn't say. Um, yeah, so he's, so he's in London, and... Every day he gets up and he goes to, I guess, rehearsal for his, with his violin. And every day for three days in a row, he notices that there's a man on the corner across the street wearing a gray knitted hood that follows him, like follows him on the bus and then suddenly like disappears. So he's like had it and he's like, I'm going to just walk up to this dude and I'm going to say like, why are you following me? Like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Is he a piss bomb? That is the worst decision he could possibly have ever made okay so he goes up to the guy and the guy is like keeps turning away he can't see the guy's face because he has like this giant hood on and then he and he keeps like he's and he's questioning him like who are you why are you following me blah 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 and then he starts to feel like man this was like a bad this is a bad decision Mm -hmm. you know he's like the bad feeling but then the guy attacks him and the guy (laughs) this is okay this is like three pages does he have sweet moves eight this is eight pages in the guy rapes him on the sidewalk. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. I really got elevated pretty quickly. Yes, very Excuse quickly. Excuse me, sir. What are you doing? Oh, my oh, God. He's, and, he's entering me. And it's like seven o'clock in the morning, like broad daylight. So the guy, but the guy's wearing like kind of a, a huge gray, like, I don't know, raincoat or something like that. So it's, I guess people, it's hard for people to see what's happening. I don't know. Um, so he has like a trench coat on, he covers him and he's raping him under the trench coat. Basically. And no one can see it. Basically. But the description. I mean, but how many times do you see that going to work? I mean, I mean all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to read a little bit of this because the description of him and, and he, this character is just referred to as Knitted Hood because no one knows who he is, doesn't really have a name. Um, Stan- whenever Stanley talks about him throughout the whole book, it's just Knitted Hood, okay? Um, Man, could have come up with a better name than that. I know. It's kind of annoying. Um, like the Trench Raper. 
uh, knitted hood was not only oppressively heavy, his body was lumpy and awkward and wrapped in all kinds of rags and scarves and metal buckled belts and pieces of blanket. He stank of grease and sweat and some nostril-burning synthetic violet odor, like air freshener for toilet bowls. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. Wow, man. <laughs> um, okay, so then, uh, without a word, Knitted Hood grasped Stanley's hair and banged his head against the concrete, almost knocking him out. I'm, I'm just kind of like skimming through this a little bit. Oh, yeah. here we go. Um, then he felt a relentless claw-nailed claw hand pulling at his coat and then his trousers. There was some fierce and... Purient? I don't even know that word. I'm like, I've never even seen that word Purient. in my life. And it's, I don't know what it is. Uh, fumbling between his legs, the buckle was torn from his Gucci belt. He wears a Gucci belt. Oh, well, he deserves to get raped then. Um, what, what can I say? I know, right? Uh, so, yes, yeah, so basically, he like rips his pants off, and then he's like, he grabs his, uh, his bare genitals in his hand, and then he starts thumbing. He-, <laughs> he starts thumbing his penis hole with his nail. <laughs> Oh like it's a lighter <laughs> like and sticking his nail in his penis hole holy shit and, and yeah let's see um thumbnail found the opening of stanley's penis and started gently and almost lovingly to scratch at it <laughs> what oh, no. there's no no you don't take your no. fingernail and lovingly put it on some guy's dick hole except if you're that black dude and that poor when the when the fucking porn star chick oh she sucks her whole finger in there her whole pinky in the black dude's dick hole and he's like i know <laughs> <laughs> But then he mounted Stanley with all the unthinking forcefulness of one animal mounting another, the same way a bull heaves itself upon a cow. Stanley felt his buttocks clawed apart, skin ripped, then something rubbery and greasy and and uncompromisingly hard pushed up against him, something as big as a baseball bat, pungent and obscenely hot, forcing itself into his anus. Is this the, like the most disgusting description ever? I mean, ever? like, he's, distur- he's, he's good. He's <laughs> oh good. God. I mean, he's on level with Jessup with his descriptions. It hurt him so much that he wept, bitterly wept, in a way that he hadn't wept since he was a child. He bit his lip with his broken tooth and blood ran down the side of his mouth, but the pain wouldn't stop, and he couldn't stop it. It drove into his bottom, and he felt that his back was cracking apart. It pushed and it pushed until he was screaming out loud. He felt the cold, heavy, regular swing of knitted hood scrotum against his thigh. His, he heard a breathing that sounded like leather bellows. Then he felt his bowels flooded with hotness and wetness deep up inside him, and knitted hood immediately slithering out of him, and he vomited coffee and half-chewed crackers all over his hands. It's like the most horrifying thing. Page 10, guys. Coffee and crackers. That's an interesting combination. That was breakfast. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I don't, it's what, it's what a, violinists eat for breakfast. It's a weird combo. There's so they, no nutrients in crackers. No, it's just white. I know. You're it's, drinking white and brown. Maybe he's trying to maintain his figure. Uh, uh, so yeah, so basically then he's just left there on the sidewalk in London. And and I want to just say from this point on, every pretty much every character that you meet is going to have an important role later. It's just this right his writing it's just very convenient you right know? yeah well i mean like what um, do you think mine was yeah. it was the same thing so he's on he's on the sidewalk half conscious and a girl comes up to him and she's like you know are you dead he's like no i'm not dead and are she's you like, dead i'm gonna call an ambulance and then he's basically like in and out of consciousness but she's gonna she'll show up later and she's important um and also this character her name is angie she is she's she has a cockney accent and the writer writes her dialogue in a Cockney accent, which I found jarring and annoying because yeah. everyone else is fine. And then she half the like, 
I guess, you know, Cockney accent, like half the words are like abbreviated in a weird way. And it's like, I don't even know what this word is supposed to be. Right. You know that's, what I mean? Like, you, yeah. You're reading it. You're trying to read it in that accent. It's really, that, from it's really an, strange. Like an editor's standpoint, they should have like told you, listen, dude, I know what you're trying to do here. But from a reader's standpoint, that's not good. Yeah. They and the editor should have fixed that. It's kind of hard when you're like, you reread the sentence like three times because you're like, wait, I need to figure yeah, out strange. what she's saying. I mean, most of it you get. But As a writer, like, you should know that you should speak in the same yeah. way throughout the book. And she's so. the only one that does that. Yeah. It's, it's really strange. I mean, everyone else is British too. It's but um, Yeah, so basically then he like wakes up in the hospital and um, he uh, he's he meets a guy named Gordon who is like a Gordon McLeish? No, isn't it? I don't remember his last name, but he um, he's a rape counselor. So, and both Gordon's like, Gordon's, a, he's a gay man and he was also raped and he's basically telling, like, in his history, he was raped, you know, he was like gang raped. It's like, oh, it's like horrible. Somebody rapes in these books. Um, but he's basically telling Stanley, like, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to prepare you for when the cops come in and, and, you know, to interrogate you because they're not going to believe a word you say. They're going to treat you like garbage and they're going to find a way to blame you for what happened to you. He's like, cause that's what they did to me. They were like, oh, you were asking for it, you know? That's a good rape counselor. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, I mean, in a way, he was being honest with him. He's yeah. like, this is what's going to happen. And just stick to the facts. Don't don't cry. Don't do any of this stuff, you know? So, of course, then, like, Stan, the cop comes in to investigate Stanley, talk to Stanley. And the cop is a dick to him and makes him, like, feel terrible and basically blames him. And, I mean, I guess this is, like, this is what happens to women, right? Like, right, yeah. oh, your skirt was too short. You were just asking for it. Um, and, yeah, and then Stanley, like, cries and he's a mess and whatever. And no one believes him, essentially. So, um, he, it, it, like, he gets, eventually he goes home and he's still recovering and, um, the, the orchestra is like, sorry, you were raped. We're going to let you rest. And basically no one gives a shit. Here's right? a free violin. <laughs> yeah. No one like cares. It's like a shame. And he's like all alone in London. His family is, his ex-wife and kid are back in the States. And, um, he starts having these weird, like, like he is not sure if he's awake or he's asleep. He's having like weird visions. He feels like his blood is like tingling in his body and burning. He'll like look out the window and he sees like it's like, you know, 1700 England out outside of his window and it's muddy and there's people dressed in weird clothing and pushing barrels of dead people down the road. I don't know. It's really strange. And he's like, lose, basically feels like he's losing his mind because he doesn't know if he's awake, is he asleep, whatever. Um, he, and he sees Knitted Hood. He, see this, he sees this Knitted Hood guy. The Knitted Hood guy actually shows up in his, hotel, in his, his hospital room and, um, and he thinks he was just dreaming it. But like, you find out like, he's having, like, it's the night plague because he's infected. Uh, but also like he is seeing the Knitted Hood guy all around. Um, so he ends up going to like this garden because he's just like out of it and wandering around and he goes to this garden there's something like pulling him and he follows and he sees knitted hood knitted hoods in this like indoor like a greenhouse kind of thing and he's like waiting there waiting there because he wants to like confront him again or follow him and see where he lives like figure out because no one's doing anything to help him and he's like you know he's having a hard time handling what happened to him and he meets this woman named madeline stringer and madeline stringer's like listen I know you're following this dude. I know all about him. I know all about you. I know about your ancestors. And he's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, it's just insane. And she's basically like telling him that his ancestors are like, they were like some warriors. And he's just like, I don't, you're insane, whatever. And he, and he like leaves her, you know, he's like, I can't handle this right now. Um, so she, um, 
he ends up like i guess re he ends up he's still in contact with gordon because he's like having like you know ptsd whatever and he keeps like he calls gordon is like hey we i need to talk to somebody um and then he ends up in a bar and the girl from the sidewalk was there this place is very convenient right, right, right he runs yeah. into her again angie right so now they're all like reconnected and he convinces them to go to a house with him where he saw the knitted hood guy enter so they go to this house in the middle of the night and they're like outside it, okay the house belonged to lord tennyson he was a writer right wasn't he a famous author yeah. whatever um so yeah they're outside of this house and they like go in and it's really strange like it's it's old abandoned house uh it's everything's wet and it's like they hear this noise and they're like what is this noise it sounds like rain they go inside the house and there's rain. It, there's one of the rooms is there's raining. It's raining. It's not raining outside. It's raining inside this house. Is this Harry Potter now? No, it's it's just fucking weird. So they're there and then they get attacked. Serious Black comes out. They get attacked by dog boy dogs, dog boys. Serious Serious Black. Dogs with boy heads, like boy heads on a dog on dogs, and they get attacked. And Gordon gets his hand like ripped off. And then Madeline Stringer shows up and she fights them off. And how saves, does a how does a dog with a boy head rip your hand off i don't know because they're crazy and strong and they've been a bit if you have a if you have a boy mouth <laughs> I don't know. how do you do that i don't know i don't know how that happens i'm just like trying to think of how like a little boy mouth is gonna your rip teeth your hand aren't off. very sharp you're, yeah, yeah you're know. just like nibbling for half an hour trying to rip yeah. the hand off i mean it, he got it off pretty quickly yeah um Strange. so yeah so they so you know gordon's bleeding out when madeline stringer shows up and they figure out that she's magic okay because she pulls out a whip she's got these thigh high boots on she's fighting them like a superhero Oh shit! it's barbara crampton and, and from beyond <laughs> so uh yeah so she shows up she takes them back to her flat and basically starts just explaining all this shit to them conveniently they are all night warriors all of their ancestors were night warriors and so she starts telling each of them like Stanley, this is your power. This was your ancestor. I'm going to take you over here and I'm going to show you what your magic armor looks so like. So it's like Dream Warriors. It's, it's crazy, right? So she like, they see their armor and she explains what each of their powers are. Um, and then, you know, Gordon also, like he was meant to lose his hand. It was his destiny to lose his hand because he, his power is... He's a pirate hook. He's the fist fighter. Okay, that's his name, the fist fighter. But basically where his hand is missing, he has a golden fist that he could just be like bam and like the fist shoots out like and like punches somebody Yo, this story's the shit <laughs> right? why do you always why do you always fucking try to outdo me with your book <laughs> stuff's like it's so funny because i like I've, i read the feeding because i heard a lot of crazy shit about it and stuff's like we have like a stack of books and stuff's like i'm just gonna read this one I did just like, randomly pick like randomly book. picked it she's like i like the cover it's good and, and it turns out to be like the best book ever it's so funny it's so ridiculous though um okay so yeah so then she tells them all their their um you know what their powers are and that they're gonna essentially you have to go into dreams to fight witches and demons holy shit it is dream, it's, it is dream warriors that's yeah and 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 then we find out like angie's like okay well who are you are you an angel she's an angel okay she's an angel and she's there to guide them on their journey as night warriors for god basically oh, so, oh, so jesus comes in i mean there's no jesus in it but he's yeah it's, he's there. But he's in um, it. They've been around for centuries, um, you know, like all these uh, families of night warriors. Um, warriors! And then we find out, so we find out more about the night plague. So when Stanley was raped, he was infected with the night plague. Uh, the guy who raped him, Knitted Hood, is a carrier. And the carriers basically work for, like, a witch. In this case, Isabel Gowdy. She, like, sends out her carriers and they go out and infect people. But not only can you be infected through actual 
sex like intercourse or rape you can be infected in dreams because we find this out because stanley and angie both have a very very vivid dream of her coming to his apartment in the middle of the night wearing this sexy red get up and then they have like this super passionate sex but then they like kind of both come to and like she's not there she's in her house he's home but like they both she's covered in semen and she's like how am i covered in semen and then like she's ectoplasm yeah so then she like comes actually does show up in his apartment and she's like upset and she's like did we just have sex and he's like well i dreamt that we had sex and then they're both like oh we had sex he's like my bed sheets say i had sex last night yeah so then she now she's infected with a night plague too so I, you can become infected in many ways that's a reach. It's weird, right? Um, yeah, and so, and then, you know, basically the whole plan with the night plague is for, you know, to everyone, to, to basically infect everybody. And when you become infected with the night plague, you become more viol- violent, violent, you become more, like, aggressive and sexual and, you know, all the st- bad stuff that's happening. I guess the 90s were, I mean, there was a lot of violence in the 90s, right? There was, like, the HIV epidemic in the 80s and 90s, drug abuse, so it's like all tied into this because basically I mean, like the dare thing was really big. Yeah. So basically they're just like blaming everything like, oh, all these like, you know, these British kids, these ruffians like running around the streets, beating people up. It's the night plague. You know, like they're like tying all this stuff. It's just so funny. Um, so, yeah. So then the whole the whole thing is like that's like Satan wants everyone to be infected with the night plague to become violent and to be his so, minions so the night plague just makes you violent but it doesn't kill you it doesn't kill you it just makes you like a horrible violent person who's going to go out and murder and rape and kill and mm. yeah interesting that's kind of the whole plan um yeah so that's like this so, huge so, outbreak and th- but this but this disease we also find that this disease has been there's been previous outbreaks do they vaccinate for it no there's no vaccine for it but there's been previous outbreaks this disease is all was also known as the bard's disease do you know why it was known as the bard's disease bard bard B-A-R-D. Think about that. Because William Shakespeare had it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Whatever. That was, that's why he was so sexual. Um, yeah, so he... Yeah, and so the only way to, to stop the current outbreak is to find Isabel Gowdy and stop her because this outbreak is of her doing all these... Do I mean, you have to find her in the dreamscape? Well, you'll see. You have to find her in both the physical world and the dream world. And you have to defeat her. At the same time? Kind of. Um, and you, you find also like her carriers are basically like, they're like, you know, lepers and things like that. Um, and she promised them like immortality for, for them to do her bidding. So like the guy who like hooded, knit, uh, hooded I mean, knit, what did I call him? Knitted, knitted, knitted hood. He like essentially is like a leper, which is why he was like lumpy and stinky. And <laughs> yeah, that's why I figured he was a leper because yeah. he was all wrapped up too. Right. And he can't speak. He just makes like weird noises and grunts. Um, so yeah, the, but they find out, okay, so they, they have to do all this. And like the only way for Stanley to become uninfected with the night plague is to find Isabel Gowdy and have sex with her. Oh, I thought, and, I thought, he, was, I thought he had to rape Knitted Hood. No, to no he has to, to have sex with the originator of it, of the outbreak, the witch, and basically, basically give her the virus back. And she's got cheat your own vagina. Which, she's probably all crusty and dried <laughs> oh, up. She, yeah, she is. She is. Um, but that's not how viruses work. I mean, you probably know that. So, yeah. So then we I also. I mean, I wish it did. We find out that there are, uh, there are two more night warriors that I they're waiting for. They're waiting. Well, you don't want to fuck her. She's all desiccated. <laughs> uh, so there are two more night warriors to make a group of five. And they're waiting for them to arrive before they can go on their first battle. Um, 
Conveniently at this time, Stanley gets a phone call from his ex-wife. Hey, my father just died. I'm going to send our son, Leon. I think he's like 11 to come stay with you in England. And he's like, oh, okay. Like, even though he's just been raped, he's a night warrior. Why he's does a he fighter, say okay? Which, because basically what we find out is he can't say no. This is all his destiny. Leon, his son, is a night warrior. Oh, shit. Leon, his son, is what yeah, the fourth night warrior. And then there's also a, a, an old man named Henry who shows up randomly. Then he's just like, he's a night warrior. And he's, but he's like, um, he has a lot of experience. He's like gone on battles already. He's already fought demons. He's like the old, you know, veteran night warrior. Um, he's and seasoned. So everyone, I'm going to tell you what all of their powers are. So Stanley is Mole Bessa. That's his name, Mole Bessa. He is a mathematic gren- grenadier. Is that right? Granted, I don't know. Or equation warrior. And essentially what he has is he goes, and he has like little buttons that he pushes and he makes him a mathematical equation. And then he takes a gun out and he shoots a cartridge. Bam. And then it does whatever power with his mathematical equation. It can try like they could try time travel. Like division symbols? I don't fucking understand. I don't know. They can time travel. He can like figure out ways to defeat people. Like I know if we like move this way at the speed and blah, 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 blah. I don't know. Mathematic warrior. Uh, Angie is... That is the lamest warrior oh, of is. all time. It is. Angie is... He F- br- brings out his ruler. He's like, I am the god of trigonometry! <laughs> <laughs> Angie is Ephes the light skater, and she's essentially a speed skater who can skate on light. I know. Super quick. Oh my light. god. That is the dumbest um, shit. Gordon is Keldak the fist fighter. I said he's the fist fighter. Uh, Henry is K6, the charge keeper, and he basically like holds the ch- power All charge. The so he holds the power charge so that if they're getting like, we- I'm the charge keeper. I have everyone's receipts alphabetically <laughs> in order. If if you need it for tax receipts or something like that, just let me know. So he like holds all this power so that as they're battling, if they're losing energy, they go over and touch him, and it's like recharge. And then they charge up. Oh, my God. And then uh, finally, Leon, uh, Stanley's son, is Zasta the knife juggler. And he's probably the coolest one. He basically has all these knives like in a backpack. And it'll just be like telepathically like, I'm going to need a knife. And a knife flies out of his backpack and goes over his head into his hand. And he's like, boom, throws a knife as fast as he can. Cool. Um, so, yeah, that's the five night warriors. So, and they don't really get a break. They, they all... Night warriors! They show up and then they have to like immediately like, okay, we're going to go first battle. Um, and they, they kind of track her down. So they, they figure out that when Stanley's having these visions of like, you know, 17th or 16th, 18th century England with the muddy roads and stuff, that's like Isabel Gowdy. That's like what she remembers because she's been locked up for like 300 years in like a, a stone coffin kind of thing. Oh, so she dried out. So she basically like, that's the world she remembers. So when Stanley sees that, that's like her dream world. I hope Stanley's bringing some lubrication when he has to have sex with her. So <laughs> he doesn't. He better bring some. <laughs> <laughs> so they, um, they end up going into her dream world and Stanley finds one of his ancestors and he gets this, I don't, I think it's like bones or something. I don't know. He gets some bullshit. And he finds like, he gets it's all this. Some, it's some bullshit. And he gets all this history about it from the guy. And I love um, our exposition when like, we don't feel like explaining something. Ah, just, just some bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then they try to fight her and they, they basically fail immediately um, because they don't know what they're doing. And, um, Stanley, uh, yeah, they, they just don't know what they're doing. So then they have to try again. And you have to defeat, wait, see, you have to defeat, um, bubble man to be able to, you know, defeat flash man. It's just the way you have to do it. So oh, is that the, the, the hierarchy? It's, it's the sequence in which you have to beat the Mega Man characters. Yeah. 
so oh i didn't even know what you were talking about like i don't know mega man um so yeah so they but they also need to figure out like where is her body entombed because they need to fight they need to find her in the physical world as well Mm -hmm. and they're just like it's like they also have to figure out this like why is all of a sudden she powerful again when she's been locked up? Because they, when they caught her, when the Night Warriors caught her three, 300 years ago, they did all this binding, magical binding on her. Always got to do binding. So, because so she couldn't do, she had no powers, you know? So, like, what, what happened? They put her finger in her, they put each one of her fingers in a Chinese finger trap and she could never yeah. escape. Yeah, so they needed, oh, so, oh, the, the, I forgot. The thing that uh, Stanley's ancestor gave him was a necklace that if, it was her necklace. Basically, if, so if he wore the necklace, the necklace would start singing when they got close to her physical proximity. So like when they were, that's how they find her body. What would it sing? Somebody's watching me. Yeah, exactly. And the witch is over there. Oh. (laughs) So they find her. And this is, this is the funny part. She's like um, entombed in this like rock limestone wall. I don't know. On the, on like the beach. uh, I think in like a Brighton or something like that. I don't know. Um, But it's basically where they're digging for the channel. You know the oh the yeah. channel. So that's how they disrupted her her grave because they're digging. What about that? What about that um, movie called Daylight, where Sylvester Stallone gets caught in the channel yeah. and it collapses? I mean, and he's if, underwater. If he was here, he would have defeated her. Sylvester Stallone just digs out of the channel and <laughs> swims to the surface <laughs> on one breath. So they're in this rock wall. They find her body entombed in there, and the reason her sh- so when they were digging, her little finger came through so basically her finger was exposed to the real world and that's how like her power so she wasn't fully powerful but she was powerful enough to like get her carriers to start doing her bidding and stuff but they're the, car- the carriers are trying to figure out also where her body because is because steph even a finger in your butthole yeah. if you don't want it is still right oh it is it is still right remember that next time we're in the bedroom <laughs> so- <laughs> and, I say, and i say no so um yeah so her carriers are also trying to find her so that they can free her from her grave and like then they can take over the world right, for right, Satan. Right. Uh, so they find her body and um, Stanley has to have sex with her so that he can get rid of How the virus. How awkward is that? Awkward because everyone's there including his son. And he's just like, Sop. And she's this... See, don't look at me. Desiccated... Listen, so she's this desiccated witch and he's like... Can someone get over here and spit on it? He can't get it up. He can't get it up because he's looking at this desiccated witch and he's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove her blindfold so I could see her eyes. Oh, yeah, that's helpful. So he takes her blindfold off. She's pe- she looks at him. She opens her eyes, looks at him, and then she has power over him. And Why did he think that was a good job? Because they make bad decisions in this, in this book. Why do you want to look at her eyes bad to be decisions. able to get a boner? I don't know. Ew. I don't know. I mean, so, I like eye contact and everything, but like still at the same no. time, like not from a witch. So essentially, they fail miserably. He can't get it up. He can't have sex with her to get rid of the virus. And they have to kind of call it a night because everyone's going to be waking up soon. The dream's going to be over. They have to flee. So, um, but they, you know, they're determined they're going to go again because now she's free because her carriers got her out. She's free. They got to fight her again. So then essentially they, they figure out like, okay, well now we, we don't know where she is, but we can find her in a dream. And they figure out that she's, um, in the dream of like this prostitute. I don't I don't remember how they figure that out, but anyway, they go into her dream to fight Isabel. And there's like a huge battle. Uh, they kill all the, the you know the carriers, and and Gordon ends up dying, unfortunately. Um, and then so there's this like the showdown, and Gordon was the fist guy. Yeah, he's the fist guy. Yeah. He dies. Poor Gordon. He does. I know. Um, she so they're like she's kind of like she's going to kill them all, and all of a sudden Stanley's ex-wife Eve shows up, 
what significance do you think the name Eve has? I don't even. Right. So she shows up. No one, like, they never knew. They never knew they had all these powers. This is all she eating an apple? She shows up basically because she needs to defend her son. She will do anything to save her son. And she's able to use her powers of, like, motherly love, I don't know, to, like, kind of overcome Elizabeth, uh, Isabel Gowdy a little bit. And then they overpower her, and Stanley's like, I'm going to have sex with you now. And she's like, okay, you can have sex with me now. And then he has sex with her and gives her back. Cause she's like, she has no, she has no choice. All of her carriers are dead. She kind of surrenders to them. They have sex. He gives back the virus. And then he uses a mathematical equation to put her in like a never ending lifetime of agony and pain. And that's kind of the end of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then there's like happily ever after, like, uh you know stan and stanley and eve are kind of kind of back together now that they know they have the secret like night warrior life i don't know secret night what so they're going to continue to do like to, to oh i mean they're evil? third night warriors this is like their destiny but what they're are they just... going to do now that the witch is gone there's nothing else to do but is there it? are more there are more witches and demons oh she was just one of them oh, that's not a series though is it no i don't think so it's, he probably wanted it's, it's, a, sta- it's a standalone Damn, that's a pretty um, good like that's a pretty good idea though it's it, weird i didn't talk about it too much in mine but like the way mine ended was like very lackluster because like you thought the kid, I, I wish they would just would have erased the whole part where the kid like snapped back out of it because yeah. it was strange because he was like full, like eating, drinking blood, eating meat. And then all of a sudden when they got to the service, he's like, dad, I killed Katie. I, I, I ate her. And it was so weird. The interaction between like the dad and like him was just strange. It's like, no, you didn't. You know, it was me. It's my fault. I'm, I'm a bad dad. That's basically oh, what it was. It was like, I'm a bad dad and like, it's my fault. It's not your fault. It's never going to be your fault. Like it's maybe, maybe like they should have just killed him. Like the the dad should just kill Joshua or yeah, pushed him over the that, edge. I mean, it would have been better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, that's it. Like they they all go off on their own, I guess, to reunite for future night battles. Night the, battles. the outbreak. The like. Every night- time you say that, I just keep thinking about like dance offs. I don't yeah. know why. <laughs> it would have been better if they had like all the night warriors or whatever the hell her name is had to have like a dance off with the witch. Yeah, oh, dance off would have been great. Uh, yeah. So they, I guess, like you know. The, the outbreak was over and everything was happy again and the world was at peace. I don't know. And, basically, and Jesus was happy. Basically, everybody just like, you know, resigned themselves to the fact that Trump's president now and we just have to wait it out for the next yeah, president. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm just going to read the last couple of um, like short paragraphs um, on the last page. This, and this book is only 310 pages. So What year did you say that was from anyway? Uh, oh, crap. I don't think I even said what it was from. Oh, 91. Yeah, I, I didn't say it was what mine was. Mine, mine, mine was from 88. Yeah, this was 91. Um, if you ever hear the most elegant Baroque violin music on your stereo, then it will probably have been played by Stanley Eisner. On the other hand, if you ever hear inexplicable screaming in the night, screaming that seems to come from nowhere at all and goes on and on and on, then you will know that Isabel Gowdy has passed you by. And if you ever hear a baby crying, plaintive and small, you will know that it is the night child, son of a witch, and a night warrior. Oh, well, yeah, so he impregnated her. I forgot to say that. I totally forgot that. The witch? Yeah, he impregnated the night uh, Well, like, I guess there was, like, in a dream state, some ridiculous bullshit where she, like, they had sex in a dream or something. And the witch is pregnant with Stanley's child. Um, the night child, a son of a witch and a night warrior, spurned by Satan, unloved by God, who can never, ever find his way home. So dumb. Because, I mean, that part, I totally, I totally forgot about that because it's not that even That was going to be the second book. It's not even important. And he just didn't what, do the, it. the Night Child? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, oh, man. We, are Wait, you sure he didn't make a sequel to I don't, it? I don't know. I we don't think We have to look so. into it. I'll have, have to look. Basically, but they didn't say anything the about book is just telling you, like, listen, you know, you're working a job now you don't like. It's shitty. Um, you know, maybe some bad things have happened in your life, but you don't know what destiny has in store for you. Like, maybe next week, 
you'll be a night warrior. Maybe you'll be the mathematical equation fighter. Maybe next week <laughs> you'll go on vacay and you'll go into the basement. And then in that basement is a basement's basement. And there's a cavern down there. And you go in there and some large master tells you to Praga, Praga, <laughs> Praga. And he makes you eat this little like clay cup full of like gore. And, then, and then you turn into a, a eternal... Um, just weird piss bum living in caves. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you never know what's I mean, going to I mean, Essentially, you know, be a good person, believe in Jesus, don't have premarital sex, don't be gay. I mean, no, but, <laughs> that's what they're trying to say. And the moral story is vote. <laughs> and don't make, vote for Trump. Make sure. <laughs> I mean, ju- just vote. Just vote. Because you, you have some control of your destiny, but not all. I think this was fun. I enjoyed these books. These were good. Yeah, I liked mine a lot, yeah. actually. I hope, I'll have I to pick, pick some new books out. Um, yeah, well, thanks for joining us. And until next episode, say you love Satan. Because of the end of civilization, the Clamp Cable Network now leaves the air. We hope you have enjoyed our programming. But more importantly, we hope you have enjoyed life.